welcome to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf, founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. With me on the show today is Twila Hansen, Chief People Officer at LinkedIn. We'll be discussing LinkedIn's positive progress with their diversity, inclusion, and belonging commitments and detail some of the programming. She'll also highlight the significance of learning and development, internal mobility, skills and initiatives focused on diversity, inclusion, equity in the workplace, despite recent cutbacks on diversity training in organizations overall. So Twila, thank you so much for joining us. We're delighted to have you here. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. So let's jump into what LinkedIn is doing in the space of diversity, inclusion, and belonging, and also some of the stories that have been most compelling that talk about and are emblematic of really why you're doing this. Yeah, sure. Probably start from the highest point, what guides us at LinkedIn. So our vision is to create economic opportunity for the entire global workforce and also creating an equitable future for all. So with that as our vision, when we think about people practices, what does that mean for us internally? We've also decided that we should have a value within our organizations. We have a value in our organization, which we call Embody Dibs. And then that sort of sets the more specific, what does that mean internally? And how are we setting a people strategy that makes that value come to life? So we have a diversity, inclusion, and belonging team. We take an integrated approach to diversity, inclusion, and belonging. So that means we look at the entire talent life cycle, what it means to source talent into the organization, recruit that talent, onboard that talent, ensure that that talent is engaged, provided with meaningful work, and we build programs along the talent life cycle to ensure that we are staying true to our commitment. We also made a commitment a few years ago to double the population of U.S. Black and Latino leaders, managers, and senior individual contributors. So again, as we look through that entire talent life cycle, there are various programs and activations, changes that we've made to systems and processes so that we are staying true to achieving our commitment. So that's sort of at the big, broad stroke level, how we think about diversity, inclusion, and belonging at LinkedIn. I love the idea of integrating the life cycle because we often see people who truly believe it's important, but they do an implicit bias training, they may do a survey, and then they tell people to be more aware. But that doesn't create the systemic and cultural change that it sounds like you're doing, not only setting goals, but really integrating it into every element of the employee life cycle. That's right. We believe that that's the best way to do it. That's how you're going to see change over time. And so, as you mentioned, when you have down cycles or when you are in a situation where you think a recession is looming and you're looking for opportunities to optimize your expenses, there's not necessarily one program that you're focused on like, hey, maybe we should slim this down because you've taken an integrated approach throughout all of your people practices. So it's embedded in how you're developing talent. It's embedded in how you're thinking about your benefits offering. It's embedded in how you're thinking about flexible work and the other talent foundations beyond just a program. Now, I think programs are important. They're important to have, but I think they should be anchored 
into a more sustainable model. So doing things like mitigating bias training, you know, all of the things that you mentioned, yes, they're important and they're much more powerful if you have a very strong, like a backbone or a spinal cord, you know, something sort of central to your talent philosophy that you're able to connect those things to. I love that we're talking about it. And I love the idea of a spinal column or a backbone. I'm thinking of actually from the History Museum and the dinosaurs and those big spines. Yes. And how it shapes that animal. And when you look at the bones, that shape follows the spine. And so similarly, having a strong and well-defined spine will shape all aspects of the program. That's right. And it just becomes central to how you operate, right? It just becomes deeply embedded and it's part of the value proposition for your employees. It's the way that you just do business. It's the way that your leaders talk. So we've been really focused on what we call rhythm of business activities. What are the rhythm of business activities that where we see that there are opportunities because we see diversity, inclusion, and belonging, what we call dibs here at LinkedIn as a part of this ecosystem around our talent strategy. And I'll mention there are some things like speaking of the ecosystem and how it all works together, again, sort of associating to our vision around creating economic opportunity. We sort of use that to think about, okay, what are some of the talent issues that we have? So for example, like a lot of other companies, we have talent issues in regards to getting you know, recruiting and retaining really good software engineers. And we understand that when we look out in the market, it's a small market. It's a market also where there's not a lot of underrepresented groups who are participating in being software engineers. So one thing that we've done at LinkedIn is we've created a program that we call REACH. It's a technical apprenticeship program that bridges the opportunity gap for individuals with non-traditional backgrounds to help them get into software engineering. And it's kind of fun to think about it. So these are individuals who, you know, an example is like a dietitian, someone who's worked in the food truck industry, a former professional athlete, a musician who are now interested in trying to figure out like, how do I break into tech? Now, how do I become an AI software engineer? So we've created this program and, and really been intentional around, you know, opening up the aperture for people from different backgrounds, helping them build their technical acumen through apprenticeships, and then being able to welcome them into the organization and provide them with software engineering roles. So that's an example of how that's now become a source of recruiting. And it also achieves our mission and then when you do open the aperture and you look at people from non-traditional backgrounds, you happen to see that they're more underrepresented apprentices that you wouldn't typically see in the normal way of recruiting. So that's one example of how we sort of tie this program into our overall talent management philosophy. I live in Columbus, Ohio, and one of my colleagues runs an organization called Color Coded Labs, and their focus is attracting people, as you've mentioned, from cashiers, Amazon delivery people, folks who would never have the opportunity to have that kind of economic success. And he talks about this is generation changing, what you and I would consider entry level. There are just a full range of people who don't have access to that type of job. Amazon at $19 an hour is great when you're 20. When you're 50 supporting a family, that's not so great. 
And so I love that there are programs and LinkedIn is doing at scale what we're doing at a small scale, creating these opportunities for underrepresented people of all sorts. Yeah, it's really powerful. And I love that example that you shared. It's really powerful. And I love how you mentioned what you see from a generational perspective. And I'm working with our vice president over dibs, thinking about how do we ensure that our dibs program is really aimed at addressing socioeconomic status. You know, so many different diversity and inclusion equity programs focus on gender, focus on what you would see as your traditional categories of protected groups or underrepresented groups. It's sort of easy to measure in, in an organization. It's easier to get data. But there's also something really powerful when you're looking at a group of people from a particular socioeconomic group and you give them tools and skills so that they can have meaningful careers that are really going to impact their families in ways that their families have never experienced. And it's really exciting. I'm thinking about DIBS programs that are aimed to address those issues because, you know, to your point, you're opening up just a world of opportunity that they previously didn't have access to for, you know, a variety of reasons. I do think as we look around the corner for, you know, the future of this work, it's going to be central, at least for us, that we continue to stay focused on those who come from lower socioeconomic groups. Thank you for amplifying that. There are some things that just make my heart happy, and it is creating opportunities for people who didn't have the options I did. My parents had pre-programmed me that I was going to go to college. I think that was probably in the script when I was born, and I was raised in a way that there was a high probability that that was going to happen. But I had access to that. And so many people have access to the exact opposite script. There's no way you're going to go to college. There's no way you're going to have X kind of job. Creating one job in one family opens, to your point, the aperture for everyone in that family system. And in some cases, the entire community, because it's now possible. That's right. It's so exciting. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Europe. Europe is another program partnership that we have. So it's an external organization. And we've been in partnership with them since 2011. And what Europe does is they offer young adults a year-long career readiness program. So these amazing students spend six months learning hard skills for a new career path and then six months in an internship. Pretty much across the board, these are amazing students who come from underrepresented groups who are the first generation of students to not work sort of in your traditional labor types of roles. And they're looking to get into tech, to get into some other different type of industry. We have, I think, probably around 90 interns a year that we're able to work with. And they are absolutely a pleasure. The Europe program does such a great job with closing the gaps. If you think about, like, as you've mentioned, growing up with parents that had an expectation for you and sort of maybe had some finances set aside for you to go to college, these are the students whose parents are saying, what are you talking about college? <laughs> you know, well, you need to work and, you know, I need you to help us to help with the bills. And these are the jobs that I'm familiar with. So maybe I could help you get the jobs that I'm familiar with. So Europe does a really nice job at closing that skills gap. And then partnering with organizations such as LinkedIn and several other amazing companies to get this sort of on-the-job training. And I've worked with a Europe intern, 
and she was amazing. You know, she set up a informational interview. She was very well prepared. She asked great questions. She wasn't afraid to talk about what she wanted out of a career, which was to go into program management. She was very proud. Her parents were very proud that she was the first to sort of break through into a corporate environment. So love the Europe program. And it's amazing that we're seeing the shift and seeing this intentional focus in trying to assist those from lower socioeconomic backgrounds that could use a little bit of support. I assume you have several other programs that are part of this broader backbone or spine or ecosystem. And you've talked about benefits. You've talked about recruiting. Can you give a couple others? Because I'm assuming some of our listeners have, again, done the standard things and are curious about what thought leaders are doing that they may not have yet considered. Yeah, sure. And always happy to share. We'll go back to benefits for a minute. What we've done at LinkedIn and what's exciting to talk about with other companies too, is we have taken a lens and have constantly thought about, do our benefits work for everyone? And just sort of testing ourselves. So for example, when we looked at education reimbursement benefits, for example, we see like, okay, we do see that we have some populations within the organization who are taking advantage of our educational benefits. And then we see that there are some populations of the organization who aren't. So we try to figure out, well, if they're not, why aren't they? Are they using their perk benefits for education for student loan reimbursement? Are they using them for other things so that we could get a really good sense if there are trends by demographics. So if we're seeing that women tend to use a pool of benefits for one reason, or if our Black Latino populations are using benefits for another reason, it's always really important that our total rewards team is thinking about the demographic cuts of how benefits are used. Because to our earlier point, if you start to see, for example, 401k participation, that you have a demographic within your organization that's not maxing out their 401k, but others are, that gives you really good insight of where you need to double down on your education and perhaps engage with an employee resource group to ensure that they understand all of the benefits that you have, how they could participate, what is preventing them from fully participating in like full 401k benefits participation. So I don't want to skip over benefits that quickly because I think there's a story to be told when you look at your benefits participation through a demographic lens. And there's always a little nugget in there if you take a look just to make sure that everyone has full participation and they're taking advantage of all the wonderful benefits that folks put together for their organizations. One thing that we also did at LinkedIn in July 2021 we started to provide a financial reward to our employee resource group co-chairs. So we give them an annual award each year of their two-year term because we really do believe in our employee resource groups. We believe that they provide a sense of community and belonging, a sense of education that's really important for our employees to do their best work at LinkedIn. And the co-chairs, I mean, they're doing this work in addition to their day jobs. And they do a great job with recruiting people to their ERGs, the programming, the events, the speakers. Again, this is all in addition to their day jobs. So we wanted to make sure that we were financially rewarding that work to send a message to them about how important it is to provide visibility to the work that they're doing, but then also to ensure that we have 
amazing co-chairs who are incentivized and really proud of the work that they're doing. So that's something that we do that's a little different than what a lot of other organizations have done. Going back to sharing, we've recently, we meaning myself and our vice president of DIBS, Rosanna DeRuthi, we recorded a LinkedIn learning course that we call Advancing a DIB Strategy in Your Organization. From the perspective of, it's really important that we don't hoard our techniques, our practices, our programs, our activities, that we do anything that we can to share it and to share it freely and to make sure that all organizations, small and large and nonprofit and for-profit, have an opportunity to just get this information, understand what we're doing at LinkedIn and see if it works, test it out, experiment. We also don't believe that we have all the answers. So we love to learn from other organizations as well. But there is sort of this feeling here at LinkedIn that if we experiment with something and it takes off, it's our responsibility to make sure that we're sharing it and paying it forward. And hopefully that we're, we have that same opportunity to learn from organizations. We know we don't believe that this is IP. We want to make sure that we are participating in open source thought leadership, as well as being the recipients of open source learning. That's a really important aspect of how we think about DIBs. In the spirit of experiments, what are two or three of the experiments that you are most happy with the results, proud of, that you think others could benefit from? I think what we have done with what I just mentioned with our ERGs, that feels like that's very important. And that is something that other companies ask us quite often. How did you do it? How did you get the funding? What are the processes around that? Is it working or not? So that's something that I'm very proud that we've been able to experiment with and make it a staple in our dibs offering. I also think, and this isn't going to sound very exciting, but it's really important. Our dibs conversations with our executive team has become rhythm of business. We have our dashboards. We have a quarterly conversation. The quarterly conversations are not led by your HR partners or somebody from the dibs team. It is led by each member of the executive team. Our CEO is engaged and is looking at the data and asking us hard questions. That may not seem like a big deal, but it's a very big deal because if we're spending time on it as an executive team, if teams are putting dashboards together and as an executive team, our CEO is holding us accountable and holding each other accountable, that magic happens in the organization and it becomes prioritized. So that is something that our CEO, Ryan Roslansky, implemented early on when he became CEO almost three years ago. And that just rhythm of business activity has really shifted, I think, our overall success and how we've been able to advance against our commitments. You say that's not exciting, but to move from, again, an ancillary program, and we've all seen organizations bolt on things. Things that are bolted on seem to fall off when budgets get cut. So integrating it in. And that's where you started, the spine and the integrated part of the system, that it is how we do business means it gets sustained. Like I'm not going to stop brushing my teeth because it just is what I do. Nobody has to tell me that oral health is helpful. It's part of how my life flows. And it sounds like from a business life, you talk about profitability, you talk about supply chain, 
and you talk about the dibs program, but you don't prioritize one over the other. They're all foundational to success. That's right. And it just, it makes a difference. Not to overuse a term, it just becomes rhythm of business. And there isn't that spotlight on it when you're looking at ways of cutting, it becomes part of your DNA. And I'm assuming as it seems like every tech company is cutting jobs, the dibs program isn't subject to those conversations or any more than any other department. That's right. Potentially everyone's subject to the conversation, but it's not like you lob off this department and keep all those other people. That's right. So do you have one more experiment that you think has been foundational to your success? I don't know if it's one more. I think, again, Maureen, you kind of have to make sure you're looking at every single step of the life cycle. So for us, it means ensuring that we have the right partnerships in place, you know, external strategic partnerships in place. For us in tech, it's ensuring that we have those deep connections to organizations like Lavity and Anita B Org and management leadership for tomorrow, like Black Tech Fest, disability in, like you're ensuring that your external partnerships are robust and inclusive. What you had mentioned earlier about bias training, you know, I think for us, it's really to make sure that whatever training we do, that there's actually a process that goes along with that. You know, so for us, it's ensuring that when we are looking at a candidate funnel, when we're looking at our hiring processes, when we're looking at who's making it to our on-site interview process, that all of that work is done through a dips lens and ensuring that we're uncovering any blind spots that we have in the decision-making process. I think managers play such a critical role in any dips program. So we launched a program that we called Inclusive Leadership for Managers. It's been a very successful program for us from the perspective of over three quarters of our management population have gone through that learning. And that again is geared towards helping managers understand their role, how they could show up as allies, how they could make sure that they're having engaging conversations, they're supporting their talent in the right way. So that's a, you know sort of an example of an education that anchored on practices. Mm -hmm. And then I think, you know, again, as I had mentioned with our employee resource groups, we have 10 employee resource groups. They're important to us. They are part of our culture. As we think about LinkedIn's culture and our culture champions, they play a critical role. So we always want to make sure that as an executive team, as a leadership team, that we're supporting each of those 10 ERGs and ensuring that they're well supported, they have the resources that they need and that they're looking for new and novel ways of experimenting and getting their information out and making sure that they're providing good, robust experiences for our various communities. I love the connection between the theoretical training and the actual, now when you go back to work tomorrow morning, this is what you put in place. This is how you search resumes. This is how you source candidates. These are the kinds of interview questions you ask and the ones you don't ask to lead to starting the employee life cycle with attracting the right people. It speaks to how our VP of diversity, Rosanna, you know, how she sees her role, Maureen. She spends most of her time having conversations mm -hmm. across the organization, right? She's having conversations with talent acquisition, talent development, rewards and benefits, 
people analytics, the engineering team, our product team, you know, our marketing and communications team, you know, encouraging them in their dibs efforts, but also ensuring that we're able to see all of our work through a slightly different lens. And she's looking for those opportunities in regards to our systems and our processes and our infrastructure to see if what are the slight tweaks that we could make. So to your point, that's how she structured her work. And I think that's how we've been able to ensure that we're both operating from a theoretical, academic, education perspective, as well as being able to put things in action, right? Put that learning into action, understand how that's coming to life in your everyday work. So she plays a very critical role for us. In our prep, you talked about mobility, internal mobility, learning and development, and skill building. It sounds like you've hit on some of that. Let's go to internal mobility. How does the DIBS program connect systemically with internal mobility? At LinkedIn, we believe your next employee could be your current employee. We do believe that it's really important for organizations to understand the skills that they have, the skills that they need, and what does that mean for individuals in your organization and the opportunities that they have. We're very bullish on the idea that there should be robust career development internal mobility programs. When you look at exit survey data, why do people leave your organization? Why have they left your organization? The number one reason is lack of career advancement, a lack of career opportunities across the board, across demographics. But when you look at underrepresented groups, it's much more acute. You see that there's something that's like, oh, wow, there's either an information gap or opportunity gap, that there's something there. And then when you dig in a little deeper and ask, what are those opportunities? People say, well, I don't know. I don't know how to move in the organization. Is it that I have to know people? Is it that you tap somebody on the shoulder? I haven't had a career conversation with my manager. My manager doesn't know all the jobs that are available. And so our belief is if you can get very clear for your entire organization around what job two and job three might look like and provide the tools and the support to the organization, you're addressing your retention issues across the organization, but you're also addressing the acute issues with your underrepresented groups. So that's sort of the premise that we operate on. And there's also LinkedIn data based on you know, our external LinkedIn data that shows that employees stay 41% longer at companies that just simply have internal hiring initiatives than those who don't have those types of initiatives. And then when you actually have an employee who makes an internal move, they have a 75% chance of staying at their company after two years. And that drops to 56% for employees who haven't. So there's very strong case to be made that internal hiring, internal mobility is just good overall for your organization. And then our belief is it's also addressing the acute issues that you see in terms of retention for your organization. So that's at the big level. And then at LinkedIn, we also feel very strongly that your internal mobility program should be skills-based. And it's important for you to hire based on skills as well as develop on skills. And we have a little bit of data there to support that as well. Our LinkedIn data tells us that 61% of Black workers, 55% of Hispanic workers, 66% of rural workers, and 61% of veteran workers have in-demand skills, but not bachelor's degrees. 
So that really is how we think about that link between skills and development and what we're seeing in DIVS programs. So if you could sort of bring that together and ensure that your career mobility programs are rooted in skills, you're opening up opportunities for many, many more people into your organization. Now, it's not easy because you have to do skills assessment and you have to be very clear about the skills that you need in the organization and whether skills are expiring and what are the skills that you're going to need for the future. And that's a lot of work and it's a lot of orchestration. But I think that those organizations who invest in that way are going to see higher retention rates, growth in your organization overall, and then you'll be able to see better retention rates with your underrepresented groups. And I I think, again, it's an exciting space to think about what an internal talent marketplace looks like. And this is the work that, you know, again, we don't have all the answers at LinkedIn, but these are our beliefs and how we approach internal mobility and internal transformation with the aim of, of the course with the dibs lens to it. It seems so crucial because, again, if we go back to I'm a young person whose parents haven't been able to guide me professionally, so I'm the first person from my family to get an office job. I'm not going to have the understanding of career mobility that somebody else whose parents are doctors, lawyers, accountants, whatever, and have been for generations working in offices. I got to go to my dad when I had questions. Lots of people don't have that dad who can help. And so it sounds like the internal mobility program is the ethical next step. You can't hire people and then not provide them the resources to progress or you lose the benefit of first person in the family got an office job, but then they didn't stay. That's right. And do they go back to what they were doing or do they have someone help them along the career path? You're absolutely right, Maureen. And, and that's what we see, you know, particularly for what we, you could call first generation students. It's like, okay, I got here. You know, maybe I did get the degree, right? I got here, but how do you ask for a promotion? How do you ask for a raise? Maybe I, I want to move from the role that I have in human resources over to marketing. Is that even a thing? Do I need to go back to school? Right? Like there's so many of those questions that are good, valid questions. And if you're committed to diversity, inclusion, and belonging, you need to roll up your sleeves and provide the support, the counseling, manager acumen so that those questions can be answered and so that your diversity can thrive within the organization. So yes, that's why there's this critical connection between your DIBS programs and your internal mobility programs. It's to ensure that the talent that you're bringing into your organization is thriving and that they have those opportunities to find those additional careers or to build the additional skills within your organization. And it sounds again like this is systemic. It's not that Bill over there is good at that, but Fred, boy, you don't want your new people working for Fred. That everyone has access to the same internal mobility marketplace and infrastructure that helps people understand. That's right. And that's why I think the role of manager is so key. When you look really deeply around who are the employees who are really thriving in your organization and why, it's typically because they have an amazing manager. And a manager that's not afraid for that talent to leave them and to go someplace else, right? A manager who's sort of proud to be a talent exporter and organizations that are encouraging and incentivizing 
managers to be talent exporters. So the role of managers in today's environment is so incredibly critical to ensure that you have just a healthy culture overall where there's robust talent mobility. But then, you know, specifically from a DIPS perspective, they're able to identify gaps, create psychological safety so that employees could ask questions and help them navigate their careers. I love the idea of being a talent exporter. Am I measured on that and rewarded for that versus just I hit my numbers? This is an interesting area, and I don't necessarily think that we have it figured out at LinkedIn or other organizations who figured it out. I think there's probably some good case studies on this out there. Human nature, particularly in a time of a looming recession, is to hoard your talent. <laughs> it's like, I'm not sure if I'm going to get a backfill or I'm not sure if I'm going to have another opportunity for headcount. So I'm just going to like hoard the talent. And I think that although that might work in the short term, that type of behavior makes it so much easier for your talent to leave an organization, right? It's easier for them to get their promotion or to get more responsibility scope at a different organization than in your organization if you're hoarding onto that talent. So I think from a long-term healthy perspective, there needs to be sort of a schema, some type of framework within an organization where acknowledging human behavior to hoard and we're raising the visibility of those managers who are willing to take the hit, the short-term hit of losing an amazing talent and we're patting them on the back and we're telling them, yes, that's what we want to do because we'd rather see that talent move in the organization than to leave the organization altogether. And that's the alternative. Right. And it's just helping managers and helping the organization embrace the long term thinking about how we want to see talent thrive and grow because we ultimately, based on the data that I shared previously, those individuals will be retained and they'll continue to do amazing work for you. As a user, I have a really good customer experience. That doesn't happen by accident. Somebody works very hard to make that happen. Yeah. And I've been using LinkedIn, I think, since you started. That's amazing, Maureen. We're very thankful for the users and members who've been with us all along the way. Thank you. The internal mindset permeates. I believe that you can't have a good customer experience consistently over 20 years if you've got a mindset of unprofessional or inappropriate or lacking equity. Those things just seem to seep out over time in the customer experience. The work you're doing internally does, in my view, show up as a customer experience piece externally. I appreciate that, Maureen. I've worked at a lot of organizations and a lot of organizations that espouse their culture and values. At LinkedIn, our culture and values are and always will be our greatest competitive advantage. And how we treat each other inside the organization, you know, with trust and care, how we talk about our values, how they guide our decision making. We have a value around members first and ensuring that we're providing our members with a really good trusted experience on our platform. It permeates in how we treat each other as employees. Hopefully it's represented in the experience that you have in the platform. So it sounds like it is. So I'm, I'm glad to hear that it's working. As we're wrapping up, what would you like to share with our listeners that you're most proud of for your time at LinkedIn? Oh, wow. You know, so I joined LinkedIn just about three years ago, and it was an interesting time to start right at the beginning of the pandemic. As I look back, I'm very proud of three years ago, us being willing to make an external commitment 
around how we're going to advance diversity, inclusion, and belonging. I'm proud how we've integrated our commitment, our accountability with our executive team. So it becomes a rhythm of business. I've worked in other organizations where I was sort of knocking on doors to the executive team, trying to get time on calendars to talk about DIPS programs and at LinkedIn, it, it's a very different landscape in regards to how we value it and how we hold ourselves accountable. Very proud of how we have embodied Dibs commitment to each other as employees and to our values, since that's something that we hold in high regard. And also just proud of how at LinkedIn, we have a culture that it's palpable. I heard about the LinkedIn culture before joining the organization and you know, I was a little bit skeptical about, well, is, it, is it really, is it a real thing? And then coming to LinkedIn and feeling a sense of belonging right away and how we really do value ensuring that we're providing a sense of belonging to everybody on our teams. It is a real thing here. And so I'm just proud to be a part of it. And it's an honor to be able to continue to shepherd the organization from a talent perspective. I love the phrase rhythm of business, especially as it relates to dibs. One last question. You mentioned earlier future ready, world's changing. We've heard all the VUCA stuff. What is LinkedIn doing that positions you to celebrate your 50-year anniversary 30 years from now? That is a great question. On the people side, I think what I get really, really excited about, and I probably weaved it in over the last hour, it is this space around managers of the future getting really clear about the skills, the role of a manager, providing manager with all of the tools they need so that they understand. I mean, what we're asking of managers now, Maureen, is provide psychological safety, create a sense of belonging, hire great talent, hold people accountable for their deliverables, ensure that people have meaningful work. And remember this hybrid remote thing, we'll do that too. <laughs> and the list goes on and on and on. So I think like what we're really excited about is looking at our data, understanding how the world of work is changing and taking those opportunities to help redefine what a manager looks like in the future. So that's really exciting. I think also from the people perspective, what we can do to really ensure that every single LinkedIn employee is very clear. We call it next play. What is your next play within the organization? How are you ensuring that you're getting the skills that you need, not just now, but in the future? And let's start getting ahead of that in terms of skill development. We have an amazing economic graph at LinkedIn and you know it gives us insights on skills being able to use that data and help our own employees, making sure that they're future-proofing their skills. I'm super excited about that work also. I also think like what we have access to for any HR organization, getting so deeply entrenched in your analytics and your data and your insights and being able to look at data and analytics in a new way. I'm super excited about the continual advancements in HR data and HR tech. There are a lot of cool tools out there that's just available to make our jobs easier and just to make sure that we are data dependent in regards to the decisions that we're making. So you know, as I look around the corner, those are the things that I'm excited about. Twila, thank you so much. This has been incredibly insightful. And I assume also for our listeners, as they think about 
such an important topic and the depth of information you're sharing about how you're doing it and the results is really helpful. So thank you. How would someone, I assume people will follow you on LinkedIn. Follow me on LinkedIn, connect on LinkedIn. Happy to make the connection. Great. And thank you, Maureen. It was an absolute pleasure. Such an honor to spend this time with you. So thank you very much. Mm-hmm.